Cost of Not Paying Attention, hosted by nationally recognized speaker Janine Hamner Holman. Janine knows what it takes to attract and retain world class talent. Join her here each week on The Cost of Not Paying Attention as we use brain science, leadership, management, and real life challenges managers face to explore the places where we aren't paying attention. Welcome to The Cost of Not Paying Attention. I'm your host. Janine Hamner-Holman. What am I paying attention to today? The concept of allyship. So if any of you have spent any time in the world of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, you've heard this word about allyship. And if you have a a good friend or yourself or a partner or a child who is part of the LGBTQIA plus community, you may have heard this word about being an ally. I have a complicated relationship with this word in this particular concept of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. I totally get it inside of a concept of having someone in your life that you love who might be gay or transgender or inquiring or binary, non-binary or whatever they might be, and being an ally to that because that's something that you are not. Inside the concept of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, I have an inherent challenge with this concept of being an ally. Like I can certainly be an ally with my husband, who's black, with our kids who are biracial, with people who've had different life experiences from me. And if what we're talking about is diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging, by definition, it's a tent that includes everyone for very good reasons. For the last three years, a little more than three years, really since the murder of George Floyd, we have been having a very black and white conversation about diversity. And it makes sense. And even that line that I just said, since the murder of George Floyd, is, has become a, a telling statement. So if I say the murder of George Floyd, you assume that I have a particular perspective about it versus if you say when George Floyd died or, or something less pointing to a, a verdict. You know, so much of this has become so political. And in reality, the person, the cop, who 
put his knee on George Floyd's neck that created George Floyd's death was convicted of second and third degree murder. So legally, he was he was murdered. And it's still it's a it's this it's this polarizing thing. I have friends who are cops. I have I have a good friend who's the chief of police of a local police department. I've done work with the police department here in the city where I live. And so it's, you know, it's not that I hate all cops, but George Floyd was murdered by a police officer. That's that's just like what is. And so why this is a polarizing statement, why this is a political statement is one of these places where I feel like we have to, or we've chosen to, or we can't figure out how not to walk on eggshells and say things that either bring people in or have people not feel part of the conversation, which is back to my problem with the word allyship. By definition, if I'm an ally, I'm not in it. I'm adjacent to But there's nothing about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging that by definition excludes anybody. So yes, I'm a white, middle-aged woman who has also, you know, spent almost two decades working for social change nonprofit organizations. I was trained by the person who trained Cesar Chavez. So like that I wouldn't have standing in a community where what we're talking about is challenging issues feels exclusionary just on the face of it. And so I feel like we're we're in this interesting and difficult place where people are being included or excluded rather than being called in, rather than being brought into the conversation we're in this we're in this place of of not quite knowing how how to have these conversations and hell what i what i do for a living is help people have hard conversations so how i'm not part of a conversation about having hard, hard conversations is just a head scratcher to me so this brings me right to our guest for today. I am so excited, y'all, to introduce you to Lauren Hunter Dyson. She is the president and CEO of Cultured, which has as its, as the way it's written, the HR in capital letters. So it's C-U-L-T-U-H-R apostrophe D. Can you see it? If you can't see it, go check out the show notes because it'll be there. And she's a hometown girl for me. So as you know, I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Lauren is um, a Boston Business Journal 40 Under 40 recipient, 
which just means she's hot shit. And she's got nearly 20 years of experience as a talent, culture, and DEIB professional. She holds a bachelor's degree from Johnson and Wales University, a master's from Cambridge University, no, a master's degree from Cambridge College, and completed legal code. Blah, 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 blah. See, this is why we have Chaz to clean things up. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna start back at a holds a bachelor's degree. Lauren holds a bachelor's degree from Johnson and Wales University, a master's degree from Cambridge College, and completed legal coursework at Massachusetts School of Law at Andover. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Thank you, Janine. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, I'm so happy to have you, and I'm so happy to be having this conversation with you. So let me start the way that we often do, which is, Lauren, tell me something that you have become aware of that, whether consciously or unconsciously, we are not paying enough attention to. And what's the cost of that inattention? That's a really good question, Janine. And I've really thought long and hard about this question. And while there are so many things that I could say, um, I kept coming back to the why. We are not paying enough attention to the why. And as I mm -hmm. sat with this, I started to like this answer more and more. Because once you ask your first why, it leads to a series of more whys. Mm -hmm. And uh, which really helps you get to the root cause of things that we, I just feel like collectively, we don't sit down and pause before we act just to ask ourselves why. Oh, I love that. And so, you know, when I think of asking why and starting with why, of course, Simon Sinek pops into my head, start with why. And when you think about that question, why? Where's the first place that it takes you to look? Often it takes me to these polarizing subjects and why they are be pre being presented the way that they are in the format mm -hmm. that they, in the tone that they are on the platforms that they are. And there's always a reason why. And there's always an agenda for whichever way. Mm -hmm. And I always just start with before I, because sometimes we have a bias for action and that isn't sure. necessarily a bad thing. But if you have a bias for action, it comes with caveats and responsibility. And that responsibility is to ask why before you act. Which, which also makes me think about our possibility of thinking before we speak. And getting, getting grounded. So, you know, thinking about our conversation today led me to thinking about this concept of allyship. And, and part of what you and I were talking about in, the, in our pre-podcast chat was about like all the things that we're not talking about, all the things that we're not saying, which is, is very much connected to that why. And, and why is it that we feel like 
you know, I, I don't normally take the opportunity to talk about my complicated relationship with the word allyship or ally because I'm afraid of how it's going to be received because of the, of the fear that I have of then the judgment that other people will have about me. You know, well, who are you, blonde, white, middle-aged lady? Just, just thinking of myself as middle-aged, I have to say. It's very, it's very disconcerting because even though, you know, very much I am, I, you know, just like any of us, my, my mother-in-law who turned 90 back in March was saying to me at Thanksgiving that she's starting to feel a little old. And, and I love, I love that. And I remember when my grandmother in her early nineties was talking about, I'm starting to feel a little old. And, and my response to that was, well, if you're just starting now, like that feels, that feels like a pretty good run. And I don't feel middle-aged. So, you know, this age is a, age is just a state of mind, as they say, it's a, it's a weird concept in any of that you know, I'm worried about how people are going to, how people are going to hear that, what they're going to make up about me, about, about whatever. Because as we all know, uh, something happens and our brain makes up a story about it. And so if you hear somebody who looks like me saying a nuanced thing about allyship, it would be easy for a whole group of people to just write me off and say, oh, well, she's a Karen and she, you know, she doesn't get it. And, and I've been, you know, I, I've been working in the world of empowerment and diversity really for my whole career, almost 40 years. And so, and, and, and but that's part of what's so difficult about this world in which we live right now and and why i love it that that what what you're pointing to is is that we're not asking the question why does she, why does she have that perspective what mm -hmm. is it that's leading her to to have that perspective, I was talking with a client just yesterday and he was talking about how easy it is for us to write off people or throw people under the bus or that's a problem over there. That's not, I don't have a part in that. Yeah. Which I think is also part of what you're pointing to. I mean, well, you know, interestingly enough, I think the word allyship is complicated in and of itself, right? Mm -hmm. Allyship the way I like to think about it, allyship is a verb, right? You can't just be an ally and be complacent and not do anything. Mm -hmm. But I also feel like just because you're an ally doesn't necessarily mean you can identify, you can empathize with someone's situation and their story. But oftentimes, if you've not necessarily gone through specific things or lived life in a certain way, yep. you may not be able to completely identify with the situation. So I often like to say, it's different when you've been able to live your life on offense than when you've had to live your life on defense. And yep. even that perspective changes how someone can be an ally to someone else. Mm -hmm. 
And so it's really hard. And then, you know, are people willing to be allies past the point of their own discomfort, right? How much are you willing to do? Mm-hmm. And for, the, for some people, you don't get to choose, right? You right. just are who you are. You present how you present. And so you will always be living life on defense mm-hmm. where an ally can be an ally, but they get to choose whether or not that is visible to other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I can't choose to walk out the door as my very dark-skinned Black husband who is then not only a Black person, but a Black man. Exactly. And I can, I can only walk outside in the body that I have. And as many of our listeners know, I have struggled with my weight my whole life. And, you know, and there's a whole thing in our culture as well about being a heavier human. And, but it, then like, it starts to feel like I've had rooms in which I've, I've talked about that experience and have been met with, yeah, but you still get to walk around in a white body. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, I do. And it feels like we start to get into the pain Olympics, whose pain is more valid, whose pain is more important, whose pain is more what at fill in the blank and and there's nothing i can do about the fact that i am in this body any more than there's anything that you can do lauren about the fact that you are a black woman and so while i can be in allyship with you on the experience of being a Black woman, where it doesn't feel like there's any conversation yet is, is it even, and and it's one of the things that I think about in this body doing this work, like, is it appropriate? Is it, does it make sense? Is it um, valid that someone who looks like you would be in allyship with me over the hurt that I have experienced? And it feels like right now our culture says no, because I am in a white woman's body and therefore part of the dominant culture, I don't get, um, I, I haven't earned organ, you know, sort of organizational support. Right. And, and, you know, that's an interesting topic because, you know, I believe in, in this concept of validation. It's part of my drive strategy. And it's actually very important to validate people's lived experiences and, you know, just how they are, perceiving life. Now, with that being said, I think there's an entire movement around kind of body positivity and accepting the body that you're in. And we're kind of getting to that place. And it's about including all people in all bodies and all shapes and sizes. 
I think one of the challenges is that this concept of body positivity is not rooted in a structure, structural system that is meant to keep people in a specific place. And so therein lie, you have the challenge around raising these two topics at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then you get into this pain Olympics, right? right? Because we're talking about something that we're actively working on, of course, and um, people still not feeling completely included because of the way that their bodies look or behave or just move. And then, you know, trying to have that same conversation about, you know, about structural racism at the same time and things that are systemic and things that, like we just talked about at the beginning of this conversation, the kind of unaliving of a person due to someone else, right? Those types of things and putting them in the same conversation sometimes can be really challenging for folks. And so sometimes we need to separate the two conversations. We don't have to talk about them at the same time. Yeah. We can create safe spaces for each conversation. But I think there is something inherent about the challenges around things that are systemic and things that have literally affected the livelihood and the lives of Black and brown people in ways that kind of shape and size have not necessarily. Mm. And so they're two very challenging topics to address at the same time. So. You just used a a phrase that I wanted to come back to, but I was so in the moment with what you were talking about. I lost it. So was it unalive? Yeah, I I noticed that it was, but then it was something else. Jazz, you're going to clean all this up with me (laughs) trying to figure out what the fuck I'm talking about here. Just to put a pin in that. No, I lost it. It'll it, if it's important, it will come back. It'll come back. It'll come yep. back. Yep. So, I want to talk a little bit about safe spaces, which which you brought up in what you were talking about, and I have a I have an interesting relationship with that concept as well. And and I'm oh good, and I'm so curious about your perspective on it, and. Because while we, my, so my perspective is while we can call people in, while we can do things ourselves to be conscious of our unconscious biases and, and make sure that we are not saying things that are actively going to make someone feel unsafe. We can't actually make somebody feel safe. What we can do, I think, is create places where people have opportunities to be brave. Because talking about your lived experience, no matter what it is, takes bravery, even inside of a quote-unquote safe space. And and so I'm curious about your perspective of, of all of this. Oh, goodness. So, you know, I say that <laughs> um, do I believe that they actually exist and, and 
that they create impact, I think I think it's twofold. So yeah. I think we can create safer spaces for people to say what they need to say. And mm-hmm. is any space ever going to be completely safe? I don't I don't know that I feel that they can be. However, one of my bigger challenges with safer spaces is they often don't result in change because there are people in the space who look like each other, who have experienced the same things. And mm-hmm. those are not the spaces where we are able to create change. We're able to create kind of partnership and allyship and understanding yeah, and vocalize how we feel about things. But they aren't the spaces where we have moved the needle around a certain yeah. thing. And so I, I go back to this kind of uh, concept that you were talking about, which is just uh, like impact and intent and, and things like that. And I always hear in organizations where people saying, Assume positive intent and it makes my blood boil <laughs> because that's not a complete sentence. Yeah. Right. 95% of the people have some form of positive intent. Yeah. However, you always have to be mindful of your impact because everyone's moral compass does not point in the same direction. So just because it's positive doesn't mean we're, we're positive on the same spectrum. Right. And we often get into this conversation with uh, marginalized communities about assume positive intent when someone says something that is harmful to them. And then it kind of gets into this gaslighting conversation about, well, you shouldn't have felt that way. It's kind of like, wait a minute, time out. Yeah. So, you know, I think we have some, some learning to do around kind of allyship and assuming positive intent, being mindful of impact and, and just the fact that we are a global society and everyone's moral compass points in a different direction. And so what do you think we do about the actual reality that so many people of color, black and brown people, are tired of explaining to people who haven't been exposed to it for whatever complicated set of reasons, what the impact is of the things that they say. And so if I say to you, wow, you know, I I can think of many things to say that would be hard to have come out of my mouth, but I could say to you like, wow, Lauren, I am so impressed with how thoughtful you are. And that's not what I was expecting. Right? It, it is, it's the most awful sort of, sort of it is. you know, backhanded, passive-aggressive, quote-unquote compliment. I might not understand why it is all those things. And you would be legitimately completely fed up with having the perspective, oh, well, poor little Janine, she just doesn't understand Mm -hmm. why that's an incredibly insulting thing to say. And please, yeah. And I think this goes back to my original kind of thought around what are we not paying attention to in the why? 
Yeah. Because my immediate response, like what I what I immediately <laughs> wanted to say to you, talk to me about why you would expect something different from me. Right. And I think people of color, marginalized communities have gotten to the point to the point of no longer defending and being on defense because it's not my thing to defend. It's your thing to justify. Right. Why would you say that? Right. And, and, you know, if, if I'm not me, if I'm not this Janine, if I'm, if I'm a different Janine and I say that to you and you say to me, well, why, why did you have that perspective? Why did you have that assumption? I don't know if I could come up with anything meaningful in the moment that, you know, I mean, what I'm, what I'm not going to be conscious enough to say because I'm not me is like, oh, well, right. Because, because I'm racist and I think that all black people are naturally, you know, talking sort of street English and so I'm surprised that you're different. Like, I'm not going to exactly, be able to come up. That's the answer, right? Exactly. That's, that's the, the answer. answer. But am I going to be able to come up with that all by myself? You're not. And that's my point. You're yeah. going to sit there and not have anything to say. But what yeah. you can do is go back and think about why you said what you said. Yeah. Whether you say that to me or not, right? Sometimes all you can do in the moment is give someone something, something to think about mm -hmm. around their biases, around how they show up, how they're not creating safe spaces for other people, how they're just plain ignorant. Some, those are the moments that as a DEIB practitioner that yeah. really speak to me when I've been able to help someone listen to understand just by asking them why you would yeah. think something like that. And, and so I'm curious, you know, so my, my perspective is it would be really hard to come up with anything meaningful. And I don't know if I could even get there without some help. What has been your perspective in asking those questions? Where, where has that conversation gone? So, Janine, that's one thing I love to ask the provocative question. I love to ask Again, one the of the questions. reasons I ignore you. <laughs> um, I love to ask the question to get people to really think long and hard about why it is they believe what they believe. And oftentimes it takes people to, uh, it's what they've been taught, not necessarily what they've ever experienced. And those are the moments that come full circle. I've had people come back and say, thank you for asking me that question or thank you for raising it that way. Now, these are people who genuinely want to do the work. Yeah. And then there are other folks who just completely disengage from the conversation. Right. And as a practitioner, I go back to the person and I'm, you know, I'll say to them, hey, how are you doing? You know, we didn't get to finish our conversation. Let's revisit this. 
um, because that's the work that I come in to do with folks. So yeah. I can I can understand that I have a different experience in asking that question because it is the work that I do and mm-hmm. it's what organizations bring me in to do. Mm-hmm. And I also understand that it's harder for people who don't do this work and are just going about their everyday lives, maybe an engineer, maybe a doctor, just want to do what they signed up to do. Mm-hmm. They don't. It's completely off-putting. Instead of asking the question why, sometimes people just go into defense mode. Right. Or they'll answer the question and they'll say, oh, or just act like it wasn't completely offensive. Right. So it's challenging. I, but I do feel like everyone in this space should learn how to, or the art of asking why, why something came up. Even if you're not a DEIB practitioner, you can just ask why. Everyone asks why so from time to time. <laughs> it's our favorite question when we're little kids. Why? Exactly. Why? And, and it can be such a powerful question when we're grownups. And it is. Yeah. I think it's my number one power question. Just why? Mm-hmm. Have there been times when that's been especially effective? And have there been times when that's especially challenging? I mean, absolutely. Yes and yes. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, one of the one of the biggest things that I can point to is during COVID when we were having discussions about whether or not we should mandate vaccines for people. And <laughs> one of the I kept asking why. Why would we do something? Require people, take away their agency, their bodily autonomy for something that we don't necessarily know right now. We don't know. And then, you know, what we were first, at first we were hearing, you know, it will prevent the spread. Right. And then later on we learned that that's actually not the case. It prevents a person from becoming sicker, but it does not prevent you from spreading to a th- to another person. And if that is the case, then it is my choice whether or not I want to do a thing. Mm-hmm. So it was really hard in those moments and I really had to press on why would we require a thing without asking people whether or not they wanted that thing. Mm-hmm. And that's really challenging, especially when you are from a community that has had such a complicated relationship with medical institutions and <laughs> vaccine studies and things like that. Right? As, so, an, as an understatement, sister. An understatement. Right. A very complicated relationship. <laughs> so it was, it was, I was very passionate about that particular topic at the time. Uh, and uh, I think it made, it did a lot of good because uh, ultimately, you know, we got to ask the right questions. We got to, Survey the right people and we got to the right answer for where we were at mm-hmm. um, and where the organization wanted to go. But we didn't do it in a way that seemed forceful. Uh, I, I, love, I love that specific nuance right there. We did it in a way that didn't seem forceful. So I'm working with, a, with another client and uh, I've been 
doing a lot of surveying of, of staff and partners. And, and just like any fairly large organization, one of the things that can happen is, you know, leadership will see, oh, well, there's a problem over here. We know how to solve that. Institute a change, but it's actually not what the folks who are experiencing the problem, yeah, I'm seeing you rub your head, <laughs> would would want, would have designed it that way. And like, how often do we as individuals, do we as organizations, do we as leaders fall into that trap of like, oh, I see the problem. I know the solution. And, and here I will come and I will give you the solution. You know, it's, it's what in, you know, horrible, gross, generalizational terms, it's what, it's part of what the Black community is so pissed off about is that, you know, here comes the, the white woman, the white man, the white whoever with, I, I know the solution to your problem. Bullshit. Oh, it's I don't know the solution culture. to your problem. We, we don't even realize how ingrained supremacy culture is in right. just how we eat, think, and breathe. Like everything we do is built around this kind of supremacist mentality of, I know what's best for you. Yep. So come follow me and just do what I'm telling you to do. Mm -hmm. It's like, what? what? Um, <laughs> you know, I see my mom do it with my dad. It's just built into so many ways of thinking and being. It is. And so one of the things that I say to all of my clients, all my organizations is, you have to plan with people, not for people. Oh. Um, and it Preach. takes a lot more time, energy, and effort to plan with people. Yep. But you have a lot more buy-in and stakeholder engagement and understanding of a process. And people generally understand when you've included everyone, you come up with a solution. It may not be what they wanted, but... It is, it was an inclusive process and it wasn't only their perspective that mattered. And people are so much more understanding about that than when yeah. you force something that you didn't talk to anyone about or half the time you're coming with policies and procedures about a thing and you don't even do the work. <laughs> yep. Man, I could talk to you all day, but I just looked at the clock and we've been uh, chatting for almost 40 minutes. And as you know, I try and keep it to 30. I do a great job at failing for that. So <laughs> I'm going to start wrapping this up. Is there anything that you were really hoping that we would touch base on that we haven't talked about? You know, I think what are or what is the employer's responsibility around these things? That is, it's, it's, it's foundational to our society, right? Everyone works in different ways and, and has different things. And I think when I talk about the why, when I talk about allyship, when we talk about planning with and for people, I think we need to really understand how are employers really championing all of these messages? How are we leveraging these conversations, these resources 
and making sure that we are creating inclusive and accessible workplaces that address all of these issues in appropriate ways. Hmm. What a beautiful note to end on. Uh, Lauren Hunter Dyson, I want to appreciate you so much for your bravery, for your willingness to ask and, and joy in asking the hard question, for your, for your verve, for your love of these tricky, messy, challenging, exciting, invigorating conversations. Thank you for who you are and who you be. Thank you so much, Janine. Uh, it has truly been my honor to have this conversation with you. I am Janine Hamner-Holman, and this has been The Cost of Not Paying Attention. Remember, great leaders make great teams. Until next time. On behalf of Janine Hamner-Holman, thanks for paying attention. This has been The Cost of Not Paying Attention. Head on over to our website, www.janinehamner.com forward slash podcast for access to the show notes as well as additional resources. Remember, great leaders make great teams. I'm